Gentlemen, we are going to uh, go ahead and get started with our speaker. I did want to just say a word uh, of apology from Hank Avant for not being here today. Uh, Hank is doing great. Uh, he's recovered from uh, the illness that he had last month, but he had a very special family occasion with a relative who was in town only for one day today where they were having a mini family reunion. So he sends his apologies. Now I'd like to call upon our brother Charles Waring to come up and introduce our speaker today. Good afternoon, gents. Uh, I was thinking about this introduction and I've known Edward all my life. And it occurred to me that what is so striking is how could I ever imagine that my longtime friend from the new trad Savage Street gang would become a composer of music. After all, that was something that dead European men did and not guys who could throw a cast net and wet a line with the best of them. Well, I and many of you have enjoyed the realization that we were wrong. Our hunting and fishing buddy from South Abroad has become the distinguished chairman of the music department at the College of Charleston. Furthermore, Edward Brantley Hart Jr.'s music has been performed in this country and well beyond Latin America, Africa, Europe, performances in New York, Los Angeles, Kiev, Vienna, Mexico City, Johannesburg, Boston, Kennedy Center, Washington. Reviewers have described his music as spiritual and emotional, clearly visual, well-crafted, smartly scored, and cast in an accessible style that clearly communicates to audiences. The accolades continue and continue. Edward's works include concerti for violin, piano, and guitar, various orchestral works, chamber music, solo piano compositions, choral music, and art songs various uh, ensembles that have performed his music include the Shanghai Quartet, who knew? Uh, the Kiev Philharmonic, um, on on, and uh, the Philharmonica of Montevideo, um, and of course, the Charleston Symphony Orchestra, as well as the Upton Trio. He has received many commissions, including his, quote, love letter to South Carolina, which is a violin concerto formally entitled Under an Indigo Sky. Maybe some of you heard that. I, I did. It was magnificent. It premiered at the Gilliard on February 11 of 2012. This three-part concerto describes the three main regions of the state, and Edward wrote it for Charleston Symphony Orchestra concertmaster uh, Yuri Becker. Yuri returned the compliment and raised the ante. Why, how? He played a 1686 Stradivarius violin for that august occasion. Edward graduated from Port of Guide School in the University of South Carolina, where he also earned uh, a doctorate. He is married to uh, a Greenville native and prolific author and teacher, Beth Webb Hart. The Harts live around the corner from where Edward grew up and had a paper route back in the day. They have a teenage daughter, Frances, and a soon-to-be teenage brother, Edward. They're members of the Cathedral of St. Luke and St. Paul. Please welcome my dear friend and brother in Christ, Edward.
Well, thank you, Charles, for that very generous introduction. I uh, really appreciate it. It's a, a privilege to be here um, and see so many uh, old friends and familiar faces. So uh, before I start on my main topic, I, I thought maybe I'd just very briefly tell you how I came to faith as an adult. So I was raised at St. John's Lutheran Church, just a few blocks down the street in a wonderful place. But as a college student and a graduate student and a young adult, uh, I really drifted away from faith. And actually, that's probably an under, understatement. I, I, I didn't have any faith to speak of. Well, fortunately, uh, at the beginning of 1997, I was introduced to my now wife uh, on a blind date and uh, knew very quickly this is the gal I was going to marry. So about three months into our relationship, we were on our way home from Eddystow, where her, her folks had a place. And it was a spring day, and the flowers were in bloom. I was totally in love. It's like one of those old Disney movies when the little cartoon birds are flying around your head. I was me. Well, as we're driving back, she looks over to me and says, you know, if this relationship is going to get more serious, you're going to have to get right with the Lord. The birds went away just like that. <laughs> um, I thought, why do we want to bring the Lord into this? This was so, going so great. Um, I, so then she goes on to say, I am moving to Charleston this summer, just for the summer. She was in graduate school in New York. And I'm going to take an apartment, and we're going to attend a weekly Bible study. And um, that's the way it's going to be. So I said, no problem, I'll take care of everything. Well, to be perfectly frank, I'm not sure I'd even heard of a Bible study, much less having been in a Bible study. So I was in a pinch. So I thought to myself, who do I want to call? Who can help me out with this? Who knows about this Bible stuff? John Sosnowski. John Sosnowski will know. Many of you, of course, know John. He's a priest in our diocese. So I called John. I said, said look, I'm... I'm crazy about this girl. I think I want to marry her, but she tells me we need to be in a Bible study this summer. So he says, no problem. Let me call down to the church, St. Michael's, and see what's going on, and I'll, I'll circle back with you. So he, he does. He calls me back and said, look, bad news. The summers, in the summer, we, most of the Bible studies take a break. There's really nothing there for you, but I tell you what. If you and Beth Webb come to my house Every Sunday at 5 p.m., Patty and I will have a Bible study with you. That's, uh, that's putting your money where your mouth is right there. And I'm convinced that um, without that act of discipleship, I wouldn't be standing here right now. So, but I am uh, a, work, a Christian work in progress. Um, thanks be to God, I think I'm a little farther down the path than I was then, but uh, certainly have a long way to go. So I'm a composer, and in addition to teaching music at the college and being the chair of the music department, but my training is in composition. And I actually think that being a composer, it can be a detriment to your faith, it can come with spiritual hurdles. And to take that even a bit further, I think it is the case that composers can often try to become their own gods. Composers can become their own gods. Um, I'll circle back to that here in, in a minute. Um, just to put it, composers into some context here, a little historical context, I'd say we have a checkered past. On the one hand, uh, in the early church, the first thousand years or so of the Western church, 
composers really were doing their work for the glory of God, period. They were anonymous. We really didn't, we don't have very many names. They were nameless composers that wrote religious music. Well, that anonymity started to change around the Ars Nova and into the Renaissance. We, we, we finally knew who these people were. And of course, during the Renaissance, something very, uh, very important to us happened, uh, not only spiritually, but musically, the Protestant Reformation. And um, we owe a lot of our musical tradition to that moment, especially to Martin Luther. Now, I'm, we all know that Martin Luther did some very important theological work. But what you might not know is that he was a musician and a composer as well. Um, in fact, you might even be able to argue that he's, he's one of the fathers of congregational singing. In fact, he actually put together one of the first hymnals. And um, when he was studying uh, theology in Eisenach, he was actually studying music as well. And among the, the, the hymns um, in his hymnal were ones he wrote. Of course, one I think a lot of you know, Mighty Fortress is Our God, right? And as somebody raised Luther, and that's like the Protestant fight song for us. Um, so the, the version of that, though, that you know, that we all know, was harmonized by Johann Sebastian Bach almost 200 years later. So I could spend the rest of our time here telling you how great a composer Bach is, but that's not why we're here. Bach is important. Uh, well, let me just put it this way. He's, if you brought 100 composers in here and gave them true serum, 95 of them would say Bach was the greatest composer who's ever breathed there. But the reason I'm bringing him up is that he set the bar very high as it relates to being a composer and a Christian. We believe he was really very devout. Um, in many of his works, he would have these uh, short Latin phrases at the end, soli deo gloria, to the, to the glory of God alone, uh, Jesu Yuva, Jesus help me. We have one of his old Bibles, which he marked up a lot, and he wrote often things in the margin. One of his uh, statements was, with devotional music, God is always present in his grace. Another Bach quote, uh, music is an agreeable harmony uh, for the honor of God and the permissible delights of the soul. And music's only purpose should be the glory of God and the recreation of the human spirit. This last quote is really not religious, and it really, but it does say something about Bach, and it's pretty difficult for us composers. I worked hard. Anyone who works as hard as I did can achieve the same results. I'm not so sure about that. Unfortunately, Bach's humility and his faith is not shared by too many other composers. Let's take Beethoven, for example. We like to give Beethoven some religious attributes because he wrote the Ninth Symphony, the Ode to Joy, and all that. But truth be told, he was probably kind of a deist. Um, Probably the most important thing or tragic thing to happen to Beethoven was that he lost his hearing, as you all know. He went deaf, sort of midway through his, um, his creative career. And when that happened, he was distraught. He wrote his brother a letter. Um, it's, it's since become known as the Heiligenstadt Testament. It was written in a little city called Heiligenstadt. And it was almost a suicide note. It said this and I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Dear brother, I have uh, this terrible problem and nobody knows about it. 
I'm losing my hearing and it's going fast and it's awful and I can't take it and I want to kill myself. But then he goes on to say, the only reason I'm not going to kill myself is that it would be unfair to mankind to deny them my genius. <laughs> I don't know who said it. It ain't bragging if it's true, right? I don't know. <laughs> so here's a couple other Beethoven quotes. An, um, an artist is someone who has learned to trust in himself. And this one I love. There are and will be a thousand princes. There is only one Beethoven. Well, if you fast forward about 50 years, you run into Richard Wagner, who may be the most disagreeable figure in Western music history. He was just an awful person, I think. Uh, but he wrote some of the most glorious music ever. I love his music. Uh, here's a quote by Wagner. I have only a mind to live, to work as an artist, and produce my works. But for the muddy brains of the common herd, that's us. He was not a nice guy. Interestingly, I've, I've struggled a little bit about, you know, how, how do I embrace this wonderful, wonderful music by somebody who's so rotten? Um, I think the Bible gives us a couple clues. In James, it says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In Timothy, we have, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. And this last one on Matthew, I think, is very interesting as well. He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So I think, in a way, that gives us some permission to love the music while not being too crazy about the composer. So the question then is, why do these composers, why do composers in general get this inflated, godlike view of themselves? Um, why are they so susceptible to this sort of egocentric trap? Well, one explanation could be this kind of 19th century construction of the artist. It really changed in the 19th century. Before the 19th century, composers, I think, were looked upon more like craftsmen. But in the 19th century, in the Romantic era, composers and painters and, and, and poets, et cetera, were looked at as artists, people who were different, who were inspired by something else, who were not like the rest of us. And to be honest, I think we're still under that spell as a society. Think about it this way. The teenage kid down the street who has a garage band, if he happens to get one of his songs played on the radio, he then becomes a recording artist. Now, you can all decide whether he's an artist or not, but we call him an artist. That's a, a, a byproduct of the 19th century. I don't think that's the real explanation, though, of, of why these people have these inflated um, views of themselves. I think there's something uh, more sinister going on. So please forgive me, but I did bring a prop, right? You should all have a, a piece of paper and if somebody wiped their mouth with it, it's okay. It's not, and there's nothing special about it. Um, this is just a, a one page out of a piece that I'm actually currently working on. And if you don't read music, it's okay. Uh, let me just see if I can help a little bit. So can you hear me if I walk out here? Okay. So 
<clears throat> this is not like reading text in that you don't really read one line and then the next line and then the next line. All of this is happening at the same time, right? All of this is sort of happening in real time like this. And if you look to the left margin, um, you'll see abbreviation for instruments. And so every little five-line staff represents either an instrument or a group of instruments. So from top to bottom, we have two flutes, we have two oboes, we have two clarinets, we have two bassoons, we get four French horns, two trumpets, uh, two tenor trombones, a bass trombone, a tuba, timpani, two percussion parts, we have harp, we have solo violin one, solo violin two, solo viola, solo cello, violin section one, violin section two, viola section, cello section, and double bass section. All of this happening at the same time. And while all of these little squiggles and symbols might be gibberish to you, what they are are instructions. I am telling every one of those players exactly what to do and when to do it, exactly what note to play, when to play it, how loud to play it, how soft to play it. I'm even sometimes telling violinists, do you do your bow this way or do you do the, your bow this way? Or do you, play the, the, do you pluck the strings of the instrument? All that, all that information is contained in the music. So put a little differently, I've created my own world, my own universe, and I make all the decisions. I'm my own God here, and this is the, the world I created. Now, to add some fuel to that narcissistic power, that narcissistic idea, there are people involved. So I've been very fortunate to get some um, nice performances by orchestras uh, in the United States and abroad. So imagine this. You, you walk in, this has happened to me, you walk into a room um, in a foreign country and there are 100 musicians standing there sitting there, waiting for you, musicians that you've never met, with whom you probably don't even share a language, and they are waiting to execute exactly what you've told them to do and when you told them to do it. It's awfully easy to think that you're something you're not in that situation. Awfully easy. It's very easy to drink your own Kool-Aid. Um, Fortunately for me, my aforementioned wife is quite adept at reminding me who I am and who I am not. Um, and I have to remind myself that of that same quote that I did earlier, which is, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So I have to acknowledge that to the extent that I've ever done anything that is intrinsically good, it's not mine. It's just not. It's a gift from God. Um, now, I don't sit here and pretend that, that I always remind myself of that because you can get carried away pretty quickly. Now, clearly, um, being a composer is not the only way that you could 
attempt to become your own God. Um, I'm certain that most, if not all of you in this room, live lives in a way that you make decisions that affect the lives and decisions of others. Some of you, a lot, a lot of people. And I think it's certainly possible that any of us could try to become our own gods in our own little universe that we've created. Um, it's, very, it's very seductive, this, this idea. And I think this seems to be, this desire to be our own God is at the very root of Christian theology. Right at the heart of it. Right at the, at the fall. You know, it wasn't enough that we were given everything. We couldn't submit. We just couldn't do it. We could not submit. We had to make all the decisions. So um, the serpent told Eve in Genesis, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and, and evil. So I guess the question then is, what do we do about this? And again, just to clearly state, I'm a work in progress, so I have to, I have to continually deal with this. I suspect that prayer is a big part of it. Being in the Word is a big part of it. But I also think it is important, it seems to me, to surround yourself with people that you trust and people to whom you're accountable and the people who will tell you if you uh, have started to drink your own Kool-Aid. Um, and I think um, that what we see here today, I hope, is part of that process, part of the body of Christ in, in work right, right here, because hopefully we all have relationships in this room that with people we trust that can keep us straight and, and correct us when we need correcting. I'm sure, certain that, that I, I need it. Um, so with that, I think I've got a couple minutes. Can I answer any questions? Anybody want to try to attempt to sing this or anything like that? Any questions? Yes. Do you hear all of this when you're writing Yes. But it's, you know what, I, don't, I, can't, I couldn't tell you how, to, how a television works. So it's just a matter of training. You know, it's just substitute that for this. You, you just you get trained. What is the tempo of this? Uh, I don't have a tempo marking here. Probably to quarter equals, it's not too fast, quarter equals uh, 72 probably. Yes? Edward, do you feel um, as a person of faith in the environment that you are, the college, um, in, in the music department, are you an outlier in terms of being a person of faith? Mm -hmm. or? That's a good question. Um, so higher education in general is not the most religious environment. We all understand that. But you might be surprised. In, in the music department, while I wouldn't say it's a bastion of Christianity, interestingly, because so many of us were raised in church environments singing in choirs, that sort of opens the door. And so our, our biggest major is voice. And these kids who are voice majors grew up singing in church choirs, a lot of them. So at the very least, it's not strange. To them, and for some of them, I think there there's some genuine faith going on. Yeah. You hear the kids' um, church swingers uh, jobs? Yes, I, 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 
would be surprised if there aren't a couple of college kids in the choir here as, as paid ringers. They're, they're usually pretty good. Any other questions? Yes? Mama used to play records all the time. You know, I, I'd come in and and you know before I knew how to read, I probably knew all the Beethoven symphonies just by ear, just because it was always on. It was you know my mother's family used to run a help that they used to run a music store in, in Charleston, Siegling Music House, and and so we always had records and and so I think you know I took piano from an early age, but actually um, you know I st started college as an economics major. Um, but no offense to economists here, but you know, Beethoven was more interesting than the gross national product for me. So. <laughs> yes? So, uh, strikes are the next greatest Christian or greatest composer? Uh, that's a, oh, the, the, the Christian composer kind of narrows the pond a little bit. I don't know. On a Tuesday, it might be Wagner. On a, on a Wednesday, it might be Beethoven. They're, they're, they're right up there. Where's Handel? Handel's hidden in the top 10. Yeah, he's, he's, he's great. Yeah. Other, other questions? Yes? Just piano, and I'm not a very good pianist as it is. Um, I'm survival pianist. Part of what you study in graduate school is, is instrumentation and orchestration. And while I... I couldn't I couldn't produce a, a, a nice sound on the oboe. Um, I know what it does and what it doesn't do, and I, I know how to write for it. But so yes, um, no, I don't I don't play any of these instruments really. I play piano. Yes. You know I really don't. I have done some arranging. Um, actually, I hadn't done it in a long time. Last arranging gig I got. I think I was a graduate student, and they were doing this Patsy Cline review, and I had to write a tune that was um, just close enough to uh, After Midnight that it sounded like After Midnight without violating any copyright laws. <laughs> I haven't, haven't been sued since, so I, so I think I did okay. Uh, but no, most of, most of uh, the commission work I get is uh, from orchestras or occasionally smaller ensembles, um, but be, we were talking about this earlier, to be honest with you, you know, I have to really kind of write in the cracks of my life because, you know, as a father and professor and, and chair of a music department, it, there's, I'm playing defense most of the time, so summers and Christmas is when I work on pieces like this mostly. Yes? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think certainly music can reflect a culture. Uh, for me, I, I, I think I dwell less on trying to reflect a culture than reflect what I know. And what I know happens to be this place. Uh, you know, I, I've written a lot of music that is attached to land and water and and. I guess history to some extent, and this place that I know. I mean, and Charles mentioned my, my violin concerto. This piece right here, I guess I can tell you this. Don't tell anybody this, because I don't think it's for public consumption. This piece is actually going to be 
performed uh, in 2020 uh, as part of the 350th anniversary of the founding of Charleston. Um, and so it's about Charleston, you know, three movements about Charleston. So to me, that's easy. Until, until Charleston in this area, in this land, in the water, until it quits inspiring me, I've got all I need. So I'm not really all that uh, inspired by our culture <laughs> at the moment. That's a great question, though. Yes? Right. So that's a really good question. So I'm kind of old-fashioned, so what I'll, I'll start with is a, a blank sheet like this with nothing but lines, and I'll write it all in pencil, and then eventually I'll use a computer program to create something that is legible and, and, and that I can print and edit and send off to other people using the internet, but, but I'm, I'm kind of old school. Some, some of my colleagues and students will use the computer directly. I, I find that you know, having to write it out in pencil is much, much better for me. Uh, it makes me think about it more, and, and, and I don't like to be attached to the computer when I'm composing. I think you, know, you can end up sort of having the computer be a crutch. So I think I was told that the sword comes down at 1 p.m. exactly. <laughs> So it's been a great pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for having me. I want to thank all of you for being here and want to thank Edward again. As he was speaking, I was reminded those of you who know me well know I'm a big C.S. Lewis and Tolkien fan, and there's a great quotation from Tolkien where he talks about God being this beautiful beam of holy white light and that when it hits the prism, it refracts into all of these different pieces, but each one of those pieces reflects in its own way the glory of God. And that's what I love about hearing Edward's story and thinking about the diversity of the way that God calls men to reflect his glory in different ways and gives different gifts. And it's just tremendously encouraging. Let's thank Edward again. Let me uh, send you out with a blessing. Please bow your heads. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. Thanks for coming.